0: Welcome to this interior design business hosted talk as part of DecorEx Virtual 2020. My name is Jeff Hayward and in this session, with the help of my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, and our panel of experts, we will be finding out how interior designers can cut through the greenwash to be sure that they are sourcing as sustainably as possible.
1: More and more interior suppliers are making environmentally friendly claims for their products to increase their sales working out who to believe can be a minefield for designers. Greenwash, defined as behaviour or activities that mislead people into believing that a company is doing more to protect the environment than it actually is, is rife. Full transparency regarding products and the way they are made is very rare. So, what information is available to designers who want to understand the origins and the impact of what they are specifying? And what other questions all designers need to be asking them their supply chains in order to get to the truth of sustainable sourcing? Welcome to the Interior Design Business.
0: Now, for this show, we have assembled a panel of pioneering designers, all of whom have put sustainability at the heart of their businesses. Can I first ask you to introduce yourself and your company? And I'm gonna start with you, Nicola.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Um, so I'm Nicola Keenan from Box Creative. We specialise in interior design projects, um, looking after residential, hospitality, and also um, co-working clients. Um, Nicola Lindsay and I set up the practice in 2017, and our design philosophy is to consciously create. Um, this is our holistic approach to design, where the principles of ethical design, environmental, social, and community, and also wellbeing, are at the core part of our design process. And this helps ensure that the spaces, the products and the experiences that we create are both good for people and good for the planet.
0: Very good. And Chloe, what about you?
3: Hello, everyone. My name is Chloe Bullock and I run Materialised Interiors in Brighton, which I've um, been running for 15 years. Um, and I try and use problem solving and innovative materials for my clients rather than the traditional ones that use animals and um, kind of are potentially harmful to the planet. So I I kind of call what I do animal friendly, human friendly, planet friendly. Um, I've got a background in sustainable design, which has come from my time working for the body shop head office as a retail designer. Um, So I feel I have had very good experience of an ethical business as well.
0: Excellent. And and Stefan, what about you?
4: Oh, my name's Stefan and I am one half of Dodson Shoot. Nick and myself founded the company in 2015 uh, and we're actually, rather than designers, we're a procurement company, so we do the boring side of the work. Uh, So we're making sure that we purchase all the items to your project with a trade discount and making sure we deliver everything on time and on budget. Uh, We've recently undertaken a huge task of auditing our whole supply chain. Uh, it was a two-year project and we're focusing around transparency and sustainability. Uh, we've recently overhauled the website to make it easy for interior designers and architects to specify sustainably.
0: Impressive. Right. And Susie, I think you probably deserve to have a few words about yourself as well.
1: Okay, so my name is Susie Rumbold. I am the creative director and founder of Tessuto Interiors, where i um, a multidisciplinary practice based in London, and we do a mixture of residential and commercial projects. Uh, I would say that for us, sustainability is aspirational, so I'm very much here today to learn from our three expert panelists.
0: Okay, well, let's get started. So, uh, typically, the first questions that any designer is likely to have are going to center around production and transportation of product. Um, Stefan, let me let me come to you first. Why is that important to know geographically where the product came from and how it got here?
4: A lot of brands that we we work with actually outsource their production. Um, there's a lot of lifestyle brands who produce amazing furniture, but who actually don't know where the products are made uh, or are able to trace um, where they come from. So. It was one of the first questions that we always ask ask our suppliers. Do they actually know where the products come from? Do they make it themselves? Uh, Or if they outsource it, how much control do they have over that process? Um, Because it's so important to understand that the people who are actually making the product, are they looked after? Um, There are products made very far far away. Nepal, for example, lots of rugs are made there. Um, But how are people actually understanding how people are looked after um that that's super important for us
1: Stefan, i can imagine that must be a real problem because actually many people might know where their components are coming from but they don't necessarily know where the components of the components are coming from so unless they've done that exercise and interrogated their own supply chain then they won't be able
4: to answer your question it's taken as i was saying earlier on we we started the audit a couple of years ago it has taken some suppliers sort of a year and a half to come back to us with answers. It really has taken a long time. Uh, but the more people that are asking those questions, the more that they are being forced to actually look into the supply chain and understand where the where even these small pieces come from. Um, it There are lots of different, actually, lots of countries deal with it differently. Uh, so we pulled some stats together. And for example, the Italians, um, it's almost by accident, they are amazing at the sustainability side because everything is made locally. They work with all the local factories, local areas, um, because it makes good economical business sense. Um, So they actually do it by accident, Uh, whereas some of the newer brands, if you like, lifestyle brands who do everything, bedding, furniture, lighting, that's where things are sometimes made further afield uh, and they lose control of that, uh, that process. What's your
0: experience of that? question chloe how how straight do you feel suppliers are with you when they answer
3: i noticed that there's a lot of um made in britain kind of label not not the tree one there's and it turns out that it's assembled in britain it's component parts that are brought here and assembled Um, (coughs) so that's something to sort of keep an eye on really Um, but what Stefan was just going over was very very familiar to me with the process that body shop used to go through through or their sourcing of Um, shop fit in all the regions of the world where they were trading it's it's a really really hard process and i can understand why people might be a little bit daunted by it
2: um i think it depends who you're asking it to so when we asked that question we found that manufacturers and suppliers who actually make everything themselves can answer that they know that because they control all the processes and it's such an easy one for them to tackle because essentially a company that is caring about all this, every it's such a big part of them that it's like embedded in their DNA and everyone that works for them so they can answer and tell you everything about it. Whereas a company that's maybe just got one product line, it's only, it's like, um, I don't say it's a token, but it's not inherent throughout. And also if they're actually outsourcing the manufacture, they, they've got all sorts of other third parties. So unless they've done a thorough audit to know absolutely everything, it's much harder for them to actually give you that information and like Stefan said, it's taken a year and a half for someone to come back to them. So I think it depends who you're asking, um, but equally for us just finding out, you know, where we could sort stuff in the UK, could we source it from local artisans, community projects and things like that. They're really nice companies to source things from as well. Um, I'd say that
1: maybe that helps. Yeah, I was also going to say that, there, that there's another reason why um, a lot of people like to be able to have that made in Britain, you know, they literally they screw on the last knob and suddenly mm-hmm. it's made in Britain and the reason for that is because it gives them lots of um, advantages in terms of VAT and in the European Union because if you can say it's been made here then all those problems about um, import export etc etc et mysteriously vanish. So as we come out of the EU, I wonder whether actually that advantage will no longer be in place and whether people will start to perhaps not make those claims.
3: have to wait and see. All I do know is that recently the um, competition and market authority are looking into greenwashing as a whole on kind of uh, cosmetics and fashion. So hopefully that kind of scrutiny and that watchdog will kind of go over into our industry as well.
0: How how should designers approach where products are transported from? Do you think in
4: their in their approaches to design?
0: It's actually so
4: when products are shipped by road, it's actually not that not that bad the the, the impact it has when goods are consolidated on the vehicles. It tends to be lots of projects on a very short deadline, and sometimes things are shipped over by uh, flown over by plane. And that tends to be where we find the real issue. Um, There are companies out there, uh, not many of them, who offset the carbon um, for all the deliveries. Um, And there are some companies who are actually starting to look at using electric vehicles. Um, But it's very easy for me to say this. Um, But if you can avoid flying your goods over to get something ship for a product, uh, for a project, that makes a huge difference. The road transportation side of things isn't actually too bad. Uh, we actually offset all the carbon for our projects ourselves. So we calculate how far the distance they're sort of travelling from. Uh, and it's a very small amount of carbon that's produced, especially when the goods are coming on an Arctic trailer. Uh, but avoid flying is one of the my main tips, if possible. <laughs>
1: Stefan, how do you then go about actually offsetting your carbon? How does that process work?
4: So that we actually started before we put an audit into place. We sort of thought, right, we're the middlemen. There's not much we can do here. We will just offset all of the carbon. So there's some FAIR reports um, who actually calculated how much carbon it took to produce furniture. Uh, there are a few companies And we essentially extrapolated that over various pieces of furniture. We worked the sustainability expert. And essentially, at the end of the day, we calculated how much it takes to produce the furniture. And then there is also, it's quite easy for the transport to calculate based on the vehicle and the distance it's traveling, how much carbon it's going to use. So that was our initial step. We thought, result, we're offsetting the carbon, we're doing an awesome job. Um, which we very quickly realised wasn't the case. Um, But for us, it's just kind of a a basis that we do on all of the projects behind the scenes. Some clients don't care, some do care, but it's it's a really cheap thing to do, to be honest uh, with you.
2: Is it tree planting schemes you donate to in order to offset
4: the carbon, Stefan? Yes, it is. They're actually um, saving trees. So we work with forests in Peru uh, because tree planting is awesome and I wouldn't discourage it. But if you can save trees that are already existing, um, you're actually benefiting a lot more there than... Yeah, because the carbon's already locked in. Exactly, exactly.
3: Stefan, I absolutely love that you have a carbon calculated product line you know something that I can say to a client this chair has got this much you know it's cost this much CO2 to get here it's it's so clear and I only know one other company that are doing it at the moment and I just can't wait for that to become the norm because that's just going to make everyone's life easier I agree
4: definitely
3: it's brilliant you talked about (laughs)
0: timber in furniture and and I'm just wondering in terms of the components and in terms of the materials that that are used in interior design products are there any raw materials that people should avoid? I mean, are there any that you avoid, Nicola?
2: Um, I think the way we tend to look at it is we look at like virgin materials, saying so brand new things, like for example marble it's very beautiful but obviously to actually get it out of ground it's highly energy intensive and it obviously is not good for biodiversity so what we look at first of all if that's what somebody really wants we obviously to give them other options but we look at what can we get reused second hand so um you could avoid it but you could find other solutions <laughs> to use existing materials um which is always a good kind of like way around it um, but very much we look at with the materials like is it sustainable is it renewable? Um, and they're some of the really big considerations, and it's the impact on the environment, and then also the properties of that material, looking at the health of well- and well-being of people. I think
1: that also there are specific issues, aren't there, um, surrounding particular metals? I wonder if um, I wonder if you could talk us through some of those.
4: There's, um, I know, aluminium is so virgin aluminium. Uh, I think it was, it's the US Environmental Protection Agency have said that. The raw process of extra- extracting bauxite to create virgin aluminium is 9,200 times more harmful than carbon dioxide in terms of, sort of global warming and climate change. Wow. Uh, but aluminium can be recycled over and over. So, um, one of the questions we've, we've gone to suppliers asking is how much of your aluminium is recycled? Um, it's something, yes, there are arguments that people say there is also a process of um, the process to recycle aluminium is also quite intensive, but it's not 9,200 times um, worse than carbon dioxide. So it's about companies looking at the materials they use, and it's very easy to go get virgin aluminium. Um, And as we've been asking people, um, they're actually starting to look at using recycled aluminium, which is is fantastic. Uh, There's also chroming, uh, chrome as well is, is really bad. Um, and we're trying to get away from, trying to, as as Nicola said, use more recycled materials.
0: Chloe, what about from your perspective, what production processes like, like chrome plating that Stefan just mentioned, are there any anything else that you're particularly aware of? I'm thinking with your body shop, shop hat oh, on
3: Well, uh, I mean, the, the big things that, from my body shop days, which can I just tell you were in the 90s. So, um, you know, uh, half of my life ago, um, and so little of this has changed. I feel a bit like a scratch record. But, and so using sustainable timber was always a must and using an FSC and, or PEFC, which is the international version. Um, so that means that um, timber comes from a well-managed for- forest, but also they look after the people, check the working conditions and they, check, they, they make sure that habitats of, of animals aren't taken away. So it's a really important kind of whole way of looking at it and um, the other thing that they used to be very conscious of was use of formaldehyde which um has very harmful health benefits for people and we can find that in M- mdf it can be in leather you know it's a, it's it's still used 25 years later and still asking those questions and pvc as well trying to avoid pvc content because that's I'm harmful to, to-
0: what about animal testing, Chloe? Are there any interior products that we need to be conscious of that might be tested on animals still?
3: Um, well, yeah, I mean, I do still have to ask the question about paint um, because you have to ask, is the product, end product, or, or its ingredients, are any of those processes tested on animals? And it's another one of those in, um, examples of where you know, they don't always have control over the ingredients, so it takes a long time for a question to be answered. Um, And recently I've been told, you know, no, it isn't tested and I've asked again about the ingredients and then they've come back and you you look up on their um, safety sheet and you can see the animal that it's been tested on and then you need to ask if it's historic. Or, or current, because basically the EU encouraged everyone to share their test results so that no further animal testing needed to be done. So if it's historic, obviously that's that's good. But um, yeah, sadly, it's still a question to ask.
2: And just just for my benefit,
1: I, I had no idea that formaldehyde was in leather. How? Where did they stash formaldehyde into leather?
3: Well, there's all sorts of chemicals in leather. I mean, if you imagine, I mean, we, I also have believed this so i'm not being kind of you know pointing fingers at anyone but keeping a piece of life's you know skin alive requires an awful lot of chemical use so there's a lot of uh, lots of chemicals in leather and also that's quite harmful for the people who work in those industries um if they're working closely to with those chemicals and then the the water effect and then obviously biodiversity so it's um Obviously not all, everybody does everything the same way, but you know, in the mass kind of production, this this is a problem, the chemical Mm. use. Yeah. I think
0: think we're all aware that sustainability is a huge subject and you you can extend it out quite easily into biodiversity and creating the right environment around the production process as well, which, I mean, using water in in Mm. production is, you know, hugely important these days. Um, well, I
1: know cotton is a big issue with water isn't it and probably many other products too yeah I've got, got
3: facts I've got something here to read you so cotton is a um I'm a I'm a reader of ethical consumer magazine I think it's fantastic I find it a really good support if anyone wants to use that I, I look up all sorts of things for my clients on there but they tell me that um cotton is high in water, GMO, and pesticides, and also it has a moderately high carbon footprint due to the fertilizers used. But there's also things like forced labor involved in cotton production. So it's kind of really important to try and look for organic cotton, use the GOTS um, label, um, or uh, soil association as well is a good one, because just eliminating the pesticides and the chemical use that that just um, reduces the global warming potential by forty six percent. So well, yeah, it's just for switching from one type of cotton to the other. And
4: I think uh, you the know, this... majority of cotton is actually um, is actually harvested using slave labor. I think it it's a huge. Yeah. I don't know the exact percentage, but I think it's in the sort of above seventy percent. It's a huge amount that people don't realize. Um, but
3: modern slavery and slave, you know, child labour, all of this is a very big part of sustainability that sometimes gets overlooked. That's, that's and horrific.
1: Are there particular countries that are, are most um, at fault when it comes to issues like that? Or is it, is it really across the board? You know, I, I always look at things like um, cotton from Egypt, for example, is supposed to be, you know, it has a very good long staple, it's very smooth, it's, you know, the finest of its kind. Would, should I have concerns about sourcing cotton from certain places?
4: Uzbekistan's the the one of the real bad com- uh, countries that a huge amount of cotton comes from there, and they are really yeah just, yeah just try and avoid any cotton from Uzbekistan. But then I suppose if it's harvested there, but then
1: it's milled or processed in another country, you know, it could come out with an Italian or a Swiss label on it, or a Belgian label, and then you think, well, that's going to be all right. Yep. Yeah.
3: Mm,
0: Okay, so in terms of labelling, which I think is a really good point, certifications, benchmarks, what do you look for in that, Nicola?
2: Well, there is a plethora of certifications and labels out there and I'd say they're all slightly different and they have their pros and cons and they all look at slightly different things. So there's a, a very good starting point and like a guide. But I think for us we, they're, they're useful in that sense but for us having a conversation with the supplier and really drilling down and asking the questions is hugely valuable because they're also very expensive not all suppliers have the money depending on the size of the company to pay for the certifications and sometimes the suppliers are going above and beyond the actual level achieved by the certificate so it's only when you speak to them you really truly drill down and understand what they've achieved, what they haven't, what they've overachieved. Um, and also, you know, discussing, they might not be here right now, but this is their plans for the future, which I'm, obviously, I'm hugely supportive of when somebody says, we're doing what we can right now, but in five years time, this is our goal. This is where we want to be and what we're gonna be achieving. So I think very useful starting point, but it, we don't just focus on them. I think it's good to obviously understand them and they're a useful guide. Um, but for us, it comes back to really knowing your suppliers just being curious asking the questions and really drilling down to get that information it seems like it's all about the relationship yeah
0: and what's your experience Stefan, when you've been pushing suppliers is it is it ignorance or are they just deliberately i don't know hiding stuff do you
4: feel what what's what's the attitude you get i hope it's ignorance um Mm -hmm. i don't know whether that's a little naive but i'd like to hope it's ignorance Um, I completely agree with Nicola about the certifications. Um, We do ask for FSC, PFC, but there are fantastic companies out there. For example, Sebastian Cox, who isn't at a stage where he is able to certify his own wood. And lots of the certifications are really expensive, which is what we're essentially on our website, the the questions that we pulled together, our absolute dream is to have our own certification that doesn't Mm -hmm. cost crazy amounts of money. And that's not just a box ticking exercise. Mm -hmm. And I recognize the importance around the the certificates such as FSC, PEFC, because it gives some form of standard for some people to work to. Um, But just because someone doesn't have that certificate doesn't mean that they're not doing the right thing. Um, It's, There are definitely some suppliers out there who don't care about it and what we keep saying is it's just so important for you guys, anyone out there, to just ask the question because that will be fed back. We have so many salespeople who we speak to all the time uh, and they're always asking us oh what can we do to improve our sales, how can we bring more more in. If or if everyone out there is asking them what they're doing around sustainability, that will get fed back to senior management, to owners of companies who will then be forced to address it. If they think they're losing out on sales, it, they'll actually see a financial benefit to, to doing something.
1: And then also, oh, nice. I suppose that designers need to know a little bit the questions to be asking so that otherwise, again, they can just get greenwashed in the process. People will tell you what they think you want to, to hear.
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, one, of the, one of the first questions that we always ask, and it seems a very simple, easy one, but is do you have a sustainability policy? Um, that's something that most companies, most small companies who actually care, do have some form of policy. It doesn't need to be a 30 page document, but something that they are looking to achieve in the future. Um, and going back to what Nicola said, that's one of the most important things for us um for example ourselves there's so much that we can improve on we can do much better than what we're doing now but as long as people are looking to better themselves that's the main thing and i would hope if a company cares about sustainability they would have a sustainability policy and that for us is one of the first questions we ask people and it actually really shows if a company cares or not would you agree with that
0: chloe
3: yeah i'm nodding my head loads i i am um, i think it's 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 just so important that this whole sort of umbrella of greenwashing i mean it's so important that we're aware of it but i also don't want it to put people off even trying to be better and do better you know i've always felt very much that i want to encourage companies to change their ways and you know um obviously working in sustainability for these smaller producers is is a big deal it's a you know it's a, a a risk and um, and they need encouraging as well. But I, I feel very much more like um, leading with a carrot than beating with a stick kind of scenario, you know, that I completely agree.
0: Okay, so we, we've sort of explored what you of <coughs> asking questions around where the product comes from, how it gets to, where you want it to get to, and the certifications that might be attached to it and so on and so forth. But what about when the product's actually been installed um, Nicola just because you you've specified something and it's there doesn't mean that it, it it's you should forget about it does it
2: no and I think it comes back to anything we're installing one of the big things for it to be sustainable is actually is it suitable for purpose have you met the brief because if you haven't it's such a simple and a quick win if you haven't done all those things it's not actually sustainable because it's going to end up being replaced Um, So one of the big things we look for is when we're specifying or designing anything bespoke, we're designing for disassembly. It's like, how is it being made? How is it being installed? Is it recyclable? Can it be disassembled? Is it repairable? And does it have longevity? And these are all real key questions that we take into account. Um, So you're really looking at the life of the product and what's going to happen to it at the end of its life. You know, can it go back into the circular economy and be recycled and reused or remanufactured? Or literally, is it only good for landfill? And if it's just going to end up in landfill, that's absolutely what we want to avoid. So we'll always consider all of these things during the specification process.
1: But particularly with um, commercial um, projects, I know
2: we've done some big um,
1: private rental sector developments, and one of the key things where you have a, a lot of turnover and a lot of churn, people stay for a month, you know, so it's not quite a hotel, but it's not really long-term lets either. Um, and they have maintenance; there's always maintenance needs to be done on the units as 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 they as they turn over. And so one of the key things for us is to make sure that things are easy, 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 super easy to maintain, so that if something goes wrong with the tap, you're not ripping out the work surface. So it, it's also, I think. For designers thinking about perhaps the way they're drawing and specifying and putting things together that makes them easy to look after there's some of the responsibility falls onto us as well I think
3: well I think this kind of comes back to having a designer involved in the early stages to help plan out these mistakes and, and things before they happen you know the value of us and what we all bring to this
4: Something as simple as a loose cover for the furniture. There are very, very clever loose covers that don't have to be, uh, they can be very fitted. They don't have to be a-, a...
1: So not watch your granny head. <laughs>
4: exactly, yeah, exactly. And they, there are very clever ways of doing it that mean that you're not throwing away your sofa in, in PRS schemes when furniture is used and it's treated badly. Um, and there are ways of um, actually bringing that furniture back to life.
3: Can I just share another fact because um, the RSA did a, um, a study on uh, bulk furniture waste in the UK and it's nearly 60% is from our industry. So that's furniture, mattresses, bulk bulk waste. And um, a lot of these items could be instantly um, reused or repaired with very little involvement. But the, the reason most things are going to landfill is because the fire label isn't on these yes. items. It's such a simple thing.
1: When you it's can't just, even give them to charity.
3: Yeah, so kind of, I know they're in a really annoying place often and the tendency, you know, the temptation is to cut them off, but if people can just leave them intact, it would save all that waste.
0: And how much emphasis do you put on, on reusing and recycling products? I mean, it's so often you must go into a cyclery and the client says to you, I just want to get rid of all of this and get a completely new look so yeah that conversation
3: um it's i try and encourage clients just to slow down a bit you know and just look around and just check you know that we're not getting rid of something that's really going to work with the scheme um and also for domestic clients kind of have you got things in other rooms that you're tired of in these rooms but they might look good in other rooms it's almost like shopping your own house um So yeah, there's, I always try and have that sort of review part at the beginning rather than ploughing into, right, get it all out, get the skip.
1: (laughs) But it has definitely been a trend in recent years. I mean, once upon a time, you know, people inherited, when I first started working in the industry, which is a long time ago, people had stuff, people had inherited stuff that they loved and respected and wanted to keep. And there was a turning point, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, sort of very beginning of the millennium, of this century, um, where people suddenly just wanted everything new. They'd throw out everything and start again.
4: Fast fashion has gone into furniture and people just go, right, I'll, I'll replace my bathroom, replace my kitchen after a few years once I've got bored of it. And there's almost a fast fashion element to it. And it's you're, you're so right. It's just a case of slowing down and actually going, well, why can't this be a piece? Why can't it be reupholstered in a few years' time? Um, and actually buying for longevity. And yeah, I, I, completely, I completely agree.
0: I think, Nicola, you made the point as well about, about using reclaimed materials as well. So how, how easy is it to, to access those reclaimed materials as a designer and to, to encourage the client to use repurposed product?
2: think for us it's always about giving them a choice so obviously it's meeting the brief and you can give them various options and it's a really clever way to weave sustainability in if they're not fully on board at the beginning um so it's just you know when you give them the narrative or the backstory of where you saw something or how it's made what we found is with our sort of passion enthusiasm we put into that it's very contagious and then they realize it's not just a piece of wood but it's sourced from here it's been made by this artisan this you know that's involved and they really buy in and they realize just by purchasing one thing the good they can actually do and so it makes them feel good about themselves and their project and what they're doing so for us I think it's it's the, the story and that's part of the creative process um, so yeah, definitely reclaimed materials are really good. And I think looking back to what you were saying that it's for us, the fast trend trends and the fast fashion and the trends, and they're not it's inherently sustainable. So for us, it's about longevity and a piece being timeless. And the term modern airlines is picked up a lot now. And I think that's really about not just designing for such a short time or throwaway. It's about having that timeless design that can then continue and also having you know eclectic pieces and reclaimed finds and vintage pieces that's really where the creativity and the uniqueness come in and it's really doing something different with the design um which we find people really like rather than just everything from a shop it's the same as something else definitely yes definitely (laughs) sounds
0: good (laughs) one other thing i just wanted to bring up that, that I believe you know uh, something about Nicola, is off-gassing. Do you want to just explain that and how materials can can be unsustainable in that respect?
2: Yeah, so it also for us very much ties into well-being. So obviously we look at it's not just, you know, to be sustainable, it can't just be good for the planet, it's also got to be good for the people because the two need to be in harmony with each other. So they need each other to be sustainable. So when you're looking at the materials, um, you know, depending on the ways they've been treated from stain-resistant treatments to fire retardancy treatments, it off gases, so when it's inside your home, with the VOCs, it's actually, you sit on it, you warm it up, the gas comes out, now it's invisible, so people don't know, and often it's odourless, they, you know, fresh paint on the walls, there's a smell often, that's VOCs, you're smelling that but often you're sitting on something upholstered with foam in it, you don't realise the chemicals that are in your air. And obviously, whereas people used to have, you know, drafty houses and fireplaces, there was natural ventilation, now everything's double, triple, glazed, sealed. People don't have windows open in the winter. All these gases stay in. So we think, you know, our home, you know, harsh the home, that home should be such a healthy place. This is why homes aren't as healthy, because the toxins we've got in the home, whether it's probably mentioned about formaldehyde in all the, you know, the cheap throwaway MDF furniture full of formaldehyde, and that's a massive carcinogen. And it's something it's like, it's going to be called the asbestos of the future. People are still specifying this and it's just not being picked up how dangerous it is for our health. And it's the same with the gases that come off, they come off paint, they come off the varnishes, the stains, the furniture, the fabrics, the upholstery, they're everywhere but we just don't perceive them, smell them to realize. And Everyone's I understand that they're particularly hazardous for
1: small children, because of course, mm-hmm. small children, they're doing everything with their fingers in their mouths. So when That's your two-year-old is crawling over the sofa, you know, munching mm-hmm. on the sofa cushions, um, you
2: know, they are actually ingesting this stuff. It's really dangerous. Yeah, and obviously we've got super high fire retardancy regulations in the UK. And, you know, all these sofas are covered in chemicals, you know, and, the upholsteries that are making them are having to touch them, the people sitting on them. And we just, people aren't aware and aren't realising, but um, you know, there's lots of companies now looking at more natural alternatives to these um, chemicals, which is a really positive thing. So one of the questions we ask when it's treated, okay, it's got a fire treatment or a stain resistant treatment, or what chemicals are in that? And we want fabric labels and any product label to essentially be like a food label. It should list absolutely everything on there. Currently it doesn't. So sometimes we'll then be referred to go and look at the text sheet. And we still say, right, it's still not listing everything. Let's go back again. You know, and so it's asking how how is the fire treatment done? What chemicals are used? You know, stain resistance, there's all types of different treatment. And we were delighted to discover something recently called Coex, if I pronounced it correctly, C-O-E-X. And it's basically a natural um, fire retardancy that is for natural um, like linens and cottons and things like this. And it doesn't need all the harsh chemicals. So for us, this was an absolute no-brainer. So any shears we now specify are Coex certified. And there's various big companies like um, Designers Guild, for example, that have a range of their fabrics. I think Zimron Road have got some. So for us, we were just, it's such great news. And then we speak to other suppliers. We know they've got stuff planned in the pipeline for wall coverings, for example, for other types of fabrics. So people are doing things. There are alternatives out there. It's just obviously the time to bring them to market and develop a lot of these treatments.
4: On the, on the fire treatment as well, there are also fabrics, which are inherently Crib-5 um, for commercial use. Um, I, get, I understand from a designer's perspective how it limits your choices, which is why Coex is a great alternative, but there are fabrics out there, if you look at the labels at the back that, that hit the Crib-5 regulations. Um, so there are also fabrics that you don't need to use with, um, with these toxic materials.
1: And it's
4: mostly the natural fibres, is it not? Yeah. uh, I don't know the exact regulations, but all the ones that are inherently crib five are pretty much 100% wools. Um, And they seem to be, yeah, they perform really well. Chloe, you were going to say something.
3: Oh, I was just going to go back to indoor air quality because, you know, all we hear about is outdoor air quality and how poor it is. But as Nicola's describing, we're in these spaces that are not drafty and the indoor air quality is is the world building standards say it's three to five times worse in some cases inside than it is outside so it's a bit of an eye opener worth worth having in mind
0: indeed indeed and uh, with with what we've experienced over the last well over this last year and we're still experiencing do you think people are more aware about sustainability they're more conscious of these things and more interested in in terms of sourcing locally as well which will be a good thing do
3: you think that's true Chloe? I think that um, Greta Thunberg's school strike has had a big effect you know there's a lot of pressure on parents from children you know there's a lot more awareness um, and I think David Attenborough's um, film and his documentary have been completely horribly eye-opening and yeah I think people genuinely do want to do the right thing and they want to make those steps in the right direction i'm finding that with my clients a lot of my clients don't know that this is the area that i like to work in they just know me as a a, a recommended interior designer and um and i i often have um conversations about would you know what how, why don't you try this you know kind of offer them some choices but talk about the positives in. It, to, to swap in recycled content of say a floor or a fabric or something is a very very easy thing to do with the client and doesn't affect the cost and it's kind of you know you're not using virgin materials that's the thing I really want to encourage just looking at what's already here how we can reuse it
0: and if we can make Uh, the suppliers change their minds and their approaches and clients change their minds I mean it's all small steps but change can be affected can't it
3: all this asking of questions being inquisitive just all of us keep asking because those answers will be more readily to hand and if they're not the answers that mean sales like Stefan says they're going to start to do something about looking at their supply chains and their, their production methods to improve
1: Great. They, they only have to find the information once. I mean, once they've answered you, the next time a designer comes along and asks the same question, they'll already have the information at their fingertips. So I think you're right. It's really important that we all keep
2: asking. And I think that really comes back to our role as interior designers and obviously Steffan's on the procurement side specifying, because we've got the power to ask those questions. And that essentially drives the demand, drives the supply. So um, suppliers are going to respond to those questions. So even if they aren't coming from clients, they can come from us. There's so much we can do in the industry. And when I first started this journey in 2017, I looked at my entire sample library and I was like, hang on, I need to really understand and are these good, are these bad? So we invited all our suppliers in to actually just went through very organically, lots of different questions to really understand, just get to the bottom. And we realized there were some products we didn't want to keep anymore, there's other things we were definitely going to align ourselves with because it really worked with our values and initially they said you're the only people talking and asking about this and now they're like we've had three people this week ask us this question this is good more people ask the more the industry is going to change and improve
0: fantastic and and stefan um if designers want help on those questions to ask can you point
4: them anywhere yeah 100 uh, 100, to be honest i'm gonna do a shameless plug for myself there (laughs) Um, we, we've spent ages on our website, We've every product on there, you can see what which products have low, low VOCs, which products are FSC certified. We've gone through that process because we're conscious that designers and end clients don't have time to be researching into all of this. You guys have got so much on your plates that our aim is to make that easy for you. And if you guys don't have time to answer those questions, we've done that for you. Um, so if you log on, you can click onto a product and you can see not just us saying something is sustainable, but why it's sustainable, because that's what we struggled. We see all these websites saying, this is really sustainable. And it's like, well, why? How have you decided it's sustainable? There's yeah. products that we've seen on other websites that we don't actually believe are sustainable that they say are. So we've been on it and you can see why we put a product on there uh, and go through Yeah, making it easy for you guys.
0: What what piece of advice would you have, Susie, for for any designers who are aspiring to be more sustainable? <laughs>
1: Apart from logging onto to and Shoeswear um, website, <laughs> um, I think probably just that interior designers have to understand so much about every single component type that goes into a building. You know, our our knowledge has to be encyclopedic, but actually we just need to know more. We we do need to, I think, have at least a rudimentary understanding of the production processes and the byproducts and the and the impact of those.
0: Chloe, what so would you research, rest- research,
1: research, research, research. <laughs> I suppose yeah. Is the, yeah,
3: there we go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well I just think the the thing to kind of um, a catalyst for change is a um, there's two surveys you can do on your own lifestyle, which I think are really good eye to then see even in your own home that how, how things have been used there's one which is an ecological footprint and i think it's called ecological and then there's one footprintcalculator.org and then there's one called slaveryfootprint.org, which i know sounds really distressing but this modern slavery is is rife. we we, we need to ask our suppliers for their modern slavery statements as well and this will tell you about your um, purchases and kind of how how many people and who have been involved in that, which is really a great eye opener,
2: but it's a catalyst.
0: Okay, and last word to you, Nicola.
2: Um, Thank you, Jeff. Um, So I think for us, we'd say be curious, ask questions, keep asking questions. I think really how to avoid greenwashing is, you'll see things that don't quite make sense and suppliers will say things and you just nicely ask more questions and get to the bottom of it. And that's how we found that things, when they haven't made sense, like this doesn't make sense, you can gently pull them up on it and explain that this is actually greenwashing in a nice way. Um, but I'd say a really good starting point if you want to learn more about fabrics, Chimera Fabrics have got some amazing guides. They literally break down all the terms, then explain all about carbon footprint. Cut the consumption of water and pesticides in cotton so there's some really great when you find sustainable supplies there's some really great resources on their website from Chimera Fabrics to interface flooring they've got a load of really good guides um in their research tool section so there's some great starting points but I just say be curious ask questions
0: wonderful great advice well thank you so much everybody um, really interesting panel and lots of useful advice there for interior designers. We do hope you found this session useful. Um, It's a broad subject and one that we will definitely return to in future podcasts. Who knows, maybe even DecorEx again next year. In the meantime, please do listen to our shows wherever you find your audio on-demand content and do follow, like and share what we say and do on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Interior Design Business Pod and we're on Twitter at InDesignPod. That's it. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening and watching.